Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump. Ellis. Well, good morning, and I hope you are having a wonderful morning because God is still in the business of changing hearts and minds for the truth and bringing people into a saving knowledge of Him, which is what our entire lives and experience here on this planet is all about, to get to know uh, God and to turn our lives to him and to share his truth and the truth of the gospel of Christ with everyone else, including starting with our own families and within our own church and then our own communities. And so as much as you may be discouraged by some of the headlines and by some of the the things that are going on in the news and uh, maybe in your own community, uh, depending on where you live and some uh, some things going on in your particular state, um, especially if you happen to be in the state of California today, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments, um, you... I just want to give you some encouragement this morning that we always have hope because hope is defined in the context of scripture as the patient expectation that God will fulfill his promises. We don't have hope like uh, we have wishes or, you know, the, the, the fairy tale kind of faith that um, I hope that God will do this and I really want him to and I, I have that yearning and, and, and let's see if maybe. Um, that That's not the definition of hope within the context of the person of God and his character and his nature. Uh, we can have faith in the Lord and and understand that that faith means that we are relying on the promises of God, the nature of his character, and therefore we can be confident that he will fulfill his promises and that he does uh, ultimately have our good uh, for those who are called um, according to him and um, according to his purposes. And so, you know, regardless of what your uh, job is, if you are on the road this morning listening um, on your way to work or whether you are at home uh, homeschooling your kids or whether you have the day off today and you're just listening, um, we need to always consider that everything that we do in life and work and our vocations and our ministries, which uh, really should all be the same thing, our entire life life goal should be uh, serving God and proclaiming his truth, that we can always have joy in that regardless of everything that's going on in the news. And we cover a lot of different topics on on this show and we talk about things going on and, and the, the problems and hopefully we get also to the solutions. Uh, but never forget that uh, there is always uh, there's always joy every morning because God is faithful. His mercies are new every morning and we can always get up praising the Lord because he is good. And no matter how bad things get in our culture or in our personal lives or in our work or in our, our daily lives, always have 
hope because this is as bad as it's ever going to get for the Christian. Whatever we experience in our life here on earth, this is as bad as it's going to get because we know that we will spend eternal life with our perfect Lord. And for the non-Christian, for people who have not come into a saving knowledge and and faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, um, the reverse of that is true, where uh, whatever they experience uh, here on earth, that's as good as it's going to get. And isn't that tragic? Uh, Because they have a uh, a future and are unfortunately looking forward to eternal separation from God. And uh, the Bible describes that as a place of eternal torment. And this is why our biggest obligation as Christians who know the truth and know the person of God and have salvation is to always share that and bring as many people into a saving knowledge of God as we can so that uh, we can continue to proclaim the gospel and um, encourage others to to see the, the truth of the reality to which we're presented that God is good and so that they too can say, whatever we are experiencing uh, here on earth, that's as bad as it's going to get. And we look forward to a wonderful eternity with the Lord. So never give up hope, never give up joy. And Christians should be the most happy, joyful people all the time because we know the truth. We know the Lord and we know his perfect character and we experience his goodness every day. So in the midst of all of that, never, ever forget that eternal perspective and why we live and move and breathe and have our being and why we do everything that we do in our lives, in our families, in our churches, and and in our community. And our community, of course, is important, and we need to continue to reflect that truth in our law and our policy. And uh, in America, we are so blessed to have a government system that allows us to participate and allows us to continue to create a more perfect union and to continue to model truth in society. And so we have to participate in that. And uh, we cannot let the uh, the left and the people who want to reflect a false ideology take over in society and simply abdicate that role. Uh, because otherwise, Uh, If we don't participate in society and in culture, someone else and someone else's false ideology is just waiting to step in. And if we don't do it, absolutely they will. They're already trying to do it. And and we see that uh, throughout our federal government, throughout our state and local governments. And so it is a fight. It's a continual battle against evil. But we have to engage that and we have to stand firm on that. And we have to make sure uh, that we are continuing to point uh, toward the good and to orient our system of government to preserve and protect our rights that come from God, our creator. And that starts actually with um, making sure that we do continue to exercise our right as citizens in this great country to select and prefer our leaders and access the franchise of voting. And I was reading one of the headlines this morning the movement to decide the presidency by popular vote gains states um, and momentum, but also faces challenges. This is from Adjust to the News, uh, our good friend John Solomon, who uh, who runs that that really great um, 
outlet. And if you uh, want to see some headlines that are that are more news and not bias, um, I always read just the news and I, I get those daily headlines in my email and that's always really helpful. Um, so this one is the effort to change how the United States elects its presidents from the existing electoral college process to a national popular vote. This is gaining momentum, but critics are questioning its legality and whether it actually improves the country's election system. And so 16 states in Washington, D.C. have joined the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, with Minnesota being the latest, and Michigan and Nevada are considering it. And so basically this idea is that we we don't take the popular vote from each state and then determine the state's own electoral college delegates uh, as the method of selecting our president, but the national popular vote then dictates how the states that are participating in this compact would then bind their delegates to the electoral college. So uh, like any sort of a change and law and policy, uh, we can ask the question of whether this is a good idea. And I am a firm uh, no in that category. I don't want any other state deciding uh, my vote just because we are then you know, going to a national popular vote. And of course, the reason that a lot of these uh, leftist run states want to do this is because they see the map, they see uh, the demographics and the popular vote, uh, like, for example, in 2016, when Hillary Clinton um, supposedly won the national popular vote, which is kind of you know the aggregate of how the media calls it. Um, and how do we even define what the national popular vote means? Well, you know, according to reports, she won the national popular vote, but the electoral college system, because of the delegates and how each state determines binding their own delegates, uh, Donald Trump won the presidency. So, you know, this has been an idea from the left to manipulate the system and to try to diminish the impact of the Electoral College. So whether or not, then we can debate whether this is a good idea or not, uh, but we first have to ask the question, is this constitutional? Because um, even what someone or a group of, of people may think is a great idea, if it's not allowed in our system of the Constitution, then that's the end of the argument. And so unfortunately, a lot of these arguments, uh, the, the left just kind of skips by the Constitution and says, that doesn't matter, and, uh, and, and just says, well, this is a good idea, and so we're going to force this through however we want. And so this particular uh, national vote interstate compact idea is actually unconstitutional. And the reason for that primarily is because of uh, Article 1, Section 10 Point three, which says that no state shall, without the consent of Congress, uh, a couple of things, and then it also says, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. And so this particular interstate um, compact is unconstitutional because Congress has not assented to this. This has gone through several of the state legislatures, in, including uh, my former home state of Colorado. And a lot of these states that are entering into this agreement to then bind their delegates. And once they get over that threshold of uh, the 270 that is required for, for a president to win, that's when the, the legislation would trigger. And they're saying, well, this is how we are going to decide our delegates. Well, even though the state legislature does have plenary authority to determine how to set up their delegates, and we all learned that in, in the aftermath of the 2020 election and, and revisited that, I should say, we, we should have already known that. 
Um, that does not mean that state legislatures can appoint their delegates in a way that violates another provision of the U.S. Constitution. And so I do anticipate that if this moves forward and there are enough states that enter into this uh, agreement to determine delegates to the Electoral College and, and diminish the vote and really uh, diminish the access to the franchise of, um, of individual voters in states, because then somebody outside of, if you're a state that's participating in this, then somebody who's outside of your state and not voting in your state is going to determine in aggregate how your state then binds its delegates. So there's an argument that it's unconstitutional because it diminishes uh, the vote for each individual. And of course, um, the ability to exercise our vote is protected multiple places in the U.S. Constitution. And that's been the subject of a lot of Supreme Court cases and a lot of different arguments. Um, but I think that the most salient argument is this argument uh, about the uh, interstate compact and that that the states can't just decide to to basically foreclose that system even though otherwise and in other methods um, like we've seen since 1824 i think it is um, the state legislatures used to determine within their own representatives how to uh, send their delegates to participate in the electoral college and then they fashion a majority of states fashion legislation to say well we're going to bind our delegates based on the um, the participation and, and popular vote, essentially, of uh, the voters in our state. And that has been uh, constitutional. That has been the way now that, that all states do that, even though the state legislature can, through its plenary authority, and that's in Article 2, Section 1.2 of the Constitution, uh, the state legislatures can determine how the delegates are chosen. But what they can't do is go against uh, this other provision. And so um, I've talked to, over the last actually couple of years, that this has been an issue, and it's obviously gaining momentum. I've talked with some of uh, my my fellow colleagues and other um, attorneys who practice in the area of constitutional law, and really we're just kind of biding our time. Um, challenges right now against this particular interstate compact would likely be uh, not be ripe, which means we can't yet challenge it because they're not in effect. But as soon as uh, enough of the states participate in this interstate compact, which is rapidly approaching, at that point, I do anticipate that this is going to uh, be challenged and it should be challenged because uh, the left is just trying to manipulate the system and trying to change the rules so that they can get their preferred outcomes. It's how they always do it. It's not, oh, let's play fair. And if we happen to lose this time, then okay. Uh, they never do that. They always try to manipulate the rules in the system and we need to hold them to the specific language in the text of the U.S. Constitution. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. 
Welcome back. And of course, uh, the top trending headline yesterday was about uh, Donald Trump pleading not guilty and the former president pleaded not guilty to 37 felony counts in connection with his alleged mishandling of classified documents on Tuesday afternoon in a Miami, Florida federal court. And so those counts include willful retention of national defense information, conspiracy to obstruct justice, withholding a document or record, corruptly concealing a document or record, concealing a document in a federal investigation, a scheme to conceal and making false statements and representations. So these are uh, very serious charges. Of course, uh, the political view in the court of public opinion surrounding this cannot be ignored. Uh, But anyone who tells you that these are not serious charges, I think, is more uh, making a political statement than looking at this uh, legally. So um, and is and is Vivek ready? Devin, all right, so good. Uh, we have a uh, presidential candidate, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is uh, joining us today. He was actually in Miami yesterday and uh, asked all of the other GOP candidates to sign a pledge that uh, they would, if elected, pardon President Donald Trump. And uh, so, Vivek, uh, what is your rationale here for asking the, uh, the GOP candidates to sign this pledge? And good morning. Good morning. Well, Jenna, as you know, I think one of my top objectives is to reform and actually fix what I view as a corrupt administrative police state. I did read the indictment. I think that this indictment smacks of politicization. I think there are deep polit- there are deep questions about the Presidential Records Act, how it's been interpreted as recently as in 2012 in the Clinton sock drawer case, selective omissions of fact and law that make me deeply suspicious of what the government's actually after here. AY submitted a FOIA demand to the Biden administration to hold them accountable in a way that the media is not holding them accountable, asking what Biden told Garland and what Garland told Jack Smith. But I also think that just like Biden shouldn't hide, I think our own party should not hide either from where we actually fall on this. And so what I've said is every candidate in this race, this is a major issue, should be clear about what as U.S. president, each of us would actually do. And I've landed at a place where I believe it would be the right thing for the country for Donald Trump to be pardoned on these federal charges. I think that will stop a downward slide of using police power to be weaponized against political opponents on what I think are tenuous charges. And I think every American deserves to know when someone's asking them for permission to be that president to say where they actually stand rather than hiding from scrutiny in the same way that President Biden managed to do in the White House today. And I thought that was important. So I think transparency is the way of this campaign, Jenna, and it's going to be the way I govern if I'm elected as president. And I'd like to push our party in a direction where every leader aspiring for that position is held to the same standard. Well, I, th- I think that uh, putting out a FOIA request, and of course that's Freedom of Information Act for those of the uh, of you listening, uh, to see exactly you know how this came about, um, we'll be very interested to see what response you get to that, and. Um, and as far as you know, looking at, at these at these charges, I mean, there's no doubt that there are politics surrounding this. Um, but what if another one of your fellow candidates comes back and says, "Okay, you know, I get that Vivek, but I actually want to see what the evidence shows." And you know, on the face of this indictment, um, if there is a conviction based on facts that are proven at trial, um, is that? So, I mean, what if he's actually guilty? I mean, is that something that you're still willing to pardon 
uh, President Trump on something that that even if you say, okay, it was a selective prosecution, perhaps where other people should have also been prosecuted. uh, What would be the rationale here? So the assumption that I'm making, Jenna, and you're right, there is one assumption embedded in here, is that the facts as alleged in the indictment are the worst possible facts. I don't believe everything that's in that indictment. Not yet. I want to see it aired in a federal court of law because that indictment reeks of politicization. But as I think is a fair assumption, the prosecutor puts up their best version of the case in the indictment, assuming that there aren't facts worse. So, so what does that mean? That there aren't evidence of selling secrets, foreign secrets to our enemies or taking multi-million dollar bribes from foreign nations to influence what access they get. You would say that's unthinkable for a president in the White House. That's a separate discussion about Biden. But assuming there's nothing like that in there, and there's nothing that even seems close to that alleged or discussed in this case, then I think we already have enough to say that according to the 2012 standards set by Judge Jackson in the clinton Sock drawer case, this does not actually violate the Presidential Records Act as it's been interpreted already in the case of Bill Clinton and his behaviors. And in a case that at best is that borderline on the law, in, against the backdrop of the judicial precedent and the executive precedent that this sets, that one president can then use tenuous legal charges departing from judicial precedent to weaponize against his main political rival, I think that is a dangerous path for our country. And so based on assuming that this is even the, the worst case of the facts is what we see in the indictment then yes, I think we should be able to be comfortable and to lead rather than to hide behind a veneer of saying, let's wait and see, which is, by the way, what many in the establishment, many in the donor class want us to be saying. I think that they are actively telling us, don't touch this with a 10-foot pole. I don't think that's the way the Republican Party should be run, though. I think that we should have leaders who on one side or other say, this is where I stand and this is why. And I think that that will better help our party actually define what we stand for and why we stand for it, rather than taking the Biden approach of carefully hiding behind a cloud of scrutiny and hope it just passes and goes away. Right. And and Vivek, I know that you need to run here to another hit. And so I really appreciate uh, your time today. And uh, and just want to say, you know, I, I absolutely um, agree with you that, you know, if this is totally politicized and this is weaponizing a, a precedent that has already been established and that comes out, then then absolutely. And there is an assumption there. And so you are willing to take that step. And I think that that is reasonable as you've articulated it. I do think it's also reasonable if other GOP candidates say we want to wait and see if what is in the indictment uh, is actually proven. And I think that that is a, a reasonable position for others as well. But I appreciate the fact that you are willing to step out on this and say, you know, listen, this looks so much like it's weaponization that I've already seen enough and this is what I would do. So um, Vivek Ramaswamy, really appreciate it. And of course, we'll uh, get you back on weekly to talk about all of these things and uh, moving forward to the 2024 election. Um, Vivek was really uh, gracious to join us today just for a few minutes to talk about that because uh, that was one of um, the main headlines yesterday, and if you saw uh, him out in Miami uh, and announcing that at his press conference, and um, you know, and again, I, I think that um, that asking that question to me was important because there is an assumption, as um, as as he admitted, there is an assumption that this indictment is basically weaponizing. 
uh, politically the entire process, and it is going against what established precedent has been. And um, and we have to remember, you know, the pardon power of uh, whether it is the president on the federal level or a governor on the state level is so that there can be a a single person that is a backstop for manipulation of the process at any stage. If there is a corrupted process um, at its inception, if there is a corrupted process because uh, the jury um, or the the judge, um, if it's a if it's a bench trial, um, if there is any kind of um, manipulation or nefariousness going on, or just something that is fundamentally unfair, if it's a selective prosecution, all of those things allow discretion for a governor and for a president to say this this really violates um, what we understand as fundamental fairness in our process. It violates the notion of, of traditional justice. And so um, whether it's a too harsh of a sentence or whether it's you know anything else, um, that is the unilateral pardon power that is uh, given to the executive branch um, because Ultimately, it's the executive on the state or federal level that brings charges from uh, the state, from the government against an individual uh, in the criminal realm. And this is also why we have so many protections in our Bill of Rights that our founders were so concerned about abuse of that process that um, even though we we tend to talk a lot about the First Amendment and a lot of those uh, protections uh, on other issues, um, so many of our uh, Bill of Rights, um, over half of them are related to uh, protections and due process that every individual gets by virtue of being a citizen of this country in the context of a criminal proceeding. And so um, so, so Vivek's position, I think, is a fair one. Um, but I also think that it is fair for any of the other GOP candidates uh, to say, well, you know, on the face of the indictment, which which, as he mentioned, is absolutely true, that this is the government's best case. It's it's a speaking indictment. Um, basically, it gives a little bit of a more a more robust narrative of what exactly has gone on. I think they anticipated that the general public would would read this and so wanted to give a little bit more of the government's case for context surrounding this. Um, but assuming that the facts that are alleged in the indictment can and will be proven, then I think it is also a fair position for other GOP candidates to say, well, we will wait and see what actually comes out at trial, because while there is a political backdrop to all of this that we can't ignore, simply saying that uh, they would exercise pardon power because the defendant in this case is Donald Trump. They may not yet be wanting or willing to go there, which I think is also a fair position just because of the nature of pardon power. So, um, so I think that you know there is there is some diversity of opinion here that um, in in both instances can be justified. Um, but these are conversations that we need to have and we need to have freely. Uh, we need to have these conversations about the 2024 election and. Um, particularly this primary that is already um, a, a total bloodbath. And I wish that it wasn't. I wish that we could uh, debate who we we as a, a conservative party want to uh, select as the nominee, um, just like we can debate um, who the Democrats as a party should select as their as their nominee. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of RFK Jr. And I think that, um, you know, that conversation needs to be had and should be had among uh, Democrat registered voters. 
And uh, we need to have those same conversations without defaulting to the uh, the popularity persona to say, well, you know, either uh, President Trump, because he was a former incumbent, simply deserves it. Um, and, and we don't do that in this country. We don't coronate individuals. We have a free and fair process for a reason. And, um, and, and for those who say, well, you know, I've been in President Trump's camp. I'm going to stay in his camp. That's a totally legitimate position for voters. Um, but we need to have these conversations and we need to have them freely and openly and with respect. And what I've seen on a lot of um, not only the social media, but even on the advertising and some of this stuff is just really disappointing. I think that we need to elevate our level of discourse and genuinely be willing to answer the question, who has the best possible, uh, not only opportunity, but um, but best possible agenda overall that not only would win a general election, but then also move forward into doing things like um, fixing the weaponization of government. And we're going to talk about that more in the next segment and um, and some of these policy positions um, that, that Governor DeSantis released yesterday, which I think is important to go into, um, which is a clear, articulate policy, just like Vivek has had on a few things. So, um, so we need to be talking about this. We need to be talking um, about all of these things within the context of our rule of law, of our constitution, and understanding, you know, not just the the top level talking points from the mainstream media, but actually drilling down and saying, okay, you're wanting to exercise this pardon power. What does that actually look like? Why do presidents have the ability to exercise pardons? And then is this a good uh, exercising of that particular power? So we need to continue uh, for that. And so in just the last couple of minutes I have with you, um, I did want to get back to California. Um, at least in this segment, um, that California is also looking to amend state law to remove children from parents who do not affirm their gender identity. Friends, this is such an incredibly important bill that that I would ask you, especially if you are listening from the state of California, um, but even if you are listening from other states, to call California and tell them, um, their legislators, that this is absolutely absurd. So Christian and conservative groups are sounding the alarm, um, according to uh, Christian Headlines, this outlet, on a California bill that would rewrite child custody laws to favor the parent who affirms the identity of a transgender identifying child over the parent who wants to maintain the actual uh, gender and the actual identity of the child. So this bill is AB 957, and it would amend state law so that courts, when deciding what is in the child's best interest, would favor the parent who affirms the identity of a transgender identifying child. This is horrific for parents who are possibly contemplating uh, going through some of these child custody battles. Those are always uh, so difficult, and the state uh, presumes that the court gets to determine what is in the best interest of the child when uh, dealing with child custody issues. And um, this is why, you know, we have as as a church, I think, abdicated too much authority to the state. Um, parents need to be presumed and in other contexts are presumed under the laws knowing uh, what is in the best interest of their own children. And this would severely foreclose Christian parents 
from the right to make sure to protect their own children from uh, identifying as transgender and setting their whole path on a um, on, on really a terrible trajectory. So that is AB 957, Assembly Bill 957 in the state of California. Call the state legislature, get active in this. We have to foreclose this because this could ultimately mirror what other states uh, try to get. So we'll be right back uh, with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning to talk more about weaponization of government and policy. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And of course, the weaponization of government is a really uh, prominent issue and I think will be a voting issue for a lot of Americans who are very concerned about uh, all of this targeting of conservatives from pastors to parents uh, to conservatives in in other contexts and um, and of course now uh, President Trump with this indictment and you know everything else that has gone on for the last seven years and so we need to be concerned about these things we need to be frustrated about these things and vocally uh, against the weaponization of government but we also need to have real practical solutions and uh, one of the the plans to wage war on the weaponized DOJ and the weaponization of government came from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis yesterday, um, who gave an exclusive to Real Clear Politics and really outlined uh, a plan that he and his team have been working on for months to tear down and rebuild both the Department of Justice and the FBI, consulting with experts and members of Congress to develop a day one strategy to end what conservatives see as the weaponization of the justice system. And so joining me now is uh, my good friend Steve Cortez, who was formerly a senior advisor with me on uh, the Trump 2020 campaign. He is now all in for Governor DeSantis and on uh, and is a senior advisor for the Never Back Down PAC. And uh, Steve, good morning and thanks so much for joining me. Jenna, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is the type of thing that I think is so important to talk about in the context of the overall conservative strategy, because I think a lot of uh, candidates and a lot of conservatives as well can point to a lot of problems. But then when when we talk about solutions, it seems very vague and just, well, we need to stop this. And I think that Governor DeSantis actually has a very clear and articulate plan that uh, that people really need to know about. So uh, how do you view this plan and uh, what is he really looking to do to solve the problem? Yeah, you bet. And by the way, I, I would argue, too, that this is representative of Governor DeSantis on the whole, that he does not believe that it's OK to just complain. We're, we're right to complain about the weaponization of the DOJ, the FBI, uh, but then to also come up with a plan. And I think that's who he is. It's what he's done in Florida. It's what I believe he'll do in the White House. Uh, if he is, in fact, elected. So regarding I encourage the audience to read this article at Real Clear Politics um, on the DeSantis plan to to wage war on the weaponized DOJ. And he gets very specific and has consulted now for months, as the article reveals, a team of experts, legal scholars, um, other other experts in the field to come up with a plan to uh, to defang the DOJ in its in its politicized and partisan targeting of Americans. Um, among the the really critical agenda items that he proposes, uh, firing a lot of people and and 
Governor DeSantis makes no distinction between the political appointees and the bureaucrats of the DOJ and other agencies, for that matter. He believes that the president is hired by the American people to be the head of the executive branch. And as the head of the executive branch, all all employees uh, of those agencies are answerable to him. Uh, to what would then be President DeSantis. Uh, he also suggests, and I think this is pretty critical, for example, to move the FBI headquarters out of Washington, D.C. Uh, I think that would do wonders for the culture of the FBI, um, for the, the fairness of the FBI to get it back to a place where it used to be as an agency that was respected and admired by the American people, wants to empower the field offices rather than a very politicized Washington, D.C. office. So I think this is uh, emblematic of Ron DeSantis as somebody who says we can't just complain, we can't just whine about the situation. We have to come up with with actual, um, clearly defined action plans to fix the situation. And clearly on the DOJ and FBI, he has that now. And I'm talking with Steve Cortez from the Never Back Down PAC. And uh, Steve, I totally agree with you. And, you know, one of my first, uh, very first legal mentors, uh, Mike Ferris, who actually wrote the uh, the forward to my book, and listeners will recognize him uh, from the the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, and then also um, from the Alliance Defending Freedom. And he always told me, you know, if you are going to advocate um, in policy and you're going to point out a problem, you better be willing to then provide a solution. Because what a lot of people like to do is complain, and we see that so much on um, not only on social media from voters, but we also see that from candidates that, you know, will go on right. all of these networks and just say, well, you know, we need to stop the weaponization of government and this is terrible and and they're right. But then there's not really a solution that's articulated. And one of the things that I love about this particular plan, and I hope that this becomes a model for for all the, of the GOP candidates that say this is a great plan from Governor DeSantis, is that he's recognizing the power of the executive, that it's right. not just just the political appointees. It's also what we would term as the deep state, which are these people who've been career bureaucrats that he does actually have uh, at, as the chief executive control over. And we saw that mirrored in the state of Florida when he fired a Soros funded DA and said, you know, no, you're not exercising your authority properly. I'm firing you. He got sued for it, didn't care. And that dude is still fired. I mean, these are things that right. are are actionable that instead of just talking about it or going into committee from you know with Congress and waiting on a very slow moving government, these are things that can and should be done. And so, how do you view um, this type of solution compared to what we generally see from the GOP? Right. Uh, no, the the contrast here is stark. And by the way, one of the one of the quotes from the piece in Real Clear Politics is. Move fast. Don't wait for Congress, uh, which I love because, you know, again, he doesn't have to wait for Congress and he shouldn't have to. And this isn't um, a, a president acting as an autocrat by any sense. The American people hire the president to be the head of the executive branch. What we have right now in the United States, effectively, we have sort of parallel governments where there's an unaccountable government that operates independently of accountability to the American people, uh, which is not at all a healthy situation, certainly not what the founders envisioned, not uh, what is appropriate for the cause of justice. And to your point, by making those people answerable to him, to the unitary executive, uh, what Governor DeSantis is proposing is is getting that out-of-control Department of Justice reined in again. And you're exactly correct that he has shown us, you know, so, okay, 
you might ask, well, why should we believe him? Why do we know that he'll follow through on his plan? Well, because he did it as governor of Florida, you know, exactly to your point of firing that corrupt Soros-backed prosecutor in the Tampa area. He is now possibly going to do the same thing in the Orlando area. Now, not every governor in America has that power. Thankfully, he does in the state of Florida, uh, and he exercised it, and he shows that through a prudent use of executive authority, as granted by the people, uh, we can rein in what seem like uncontrollable federal agencies. They are uncontrollable right now, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And this weaponization um, can be curtailed. I also want to just point out, I, I think this is fascinating within the piece. It points out that uh, among the team of experts that he's consulted, one of them is Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Victor Davis Hanson. Uh, a lot of folks might know him from his frequent Fox News appearances. He's an academic with the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's definitely a Trump supporter, uh, so I don't think he's a DeSantis partisan, but he, uh, he is one of the foremost voices in the country in terms of, uh, of, of identifying the problems with the DOJ and the FBI. And I give Governor DeSantis enormous credit for bringing in Victor Davis Hanson as one of his advisors for, hey, we need a battle plan. We can't just complain. Yelling from our couches is not a solution. Uh, and it is no longer acceptable for the Republican yes. Party, for the conservative movement. We do have an FBI that needs to be curtailed. We have a DOJ that's out of control. How do we do it? How do we, what is the action plan? Governor DeSantis now is, is publicizing what he has privately been pursuing and studying for many months. Um, and I think it's a really significant reason, in my view, to vote for him and to nominate him as the Republican uh, candidate for president. Yeah. And, you know, Steve Cortez, um, I think all of us can resonate with yelling from our couches because I do that and I'm sure you do that. But we need to do more than that. And, uh, and that that's uh, to your point. Um, I was also uh, likewise very pleased to see uh, that Victor Davis Hansen's name uh, was in this piece as one of the advisors. And um, and that came actually right after I, I had a conversation uh, with him that will be released on uh, my podcast today. So for all the listeners, go oh, to the Jenna Ellis show dot com. Yeah. And and it was actually fascinating, Steve, because um, he is is absolutely one of the most brilliant minds and talking about uh, how we we use and utilize our systems and processes against the woke leftism. We've kind of been in this um, this mode that the only two options really are to just utilize our system, be so concerned about precedent and be um, almost in this, you know, no danger zone, almost like a, a Bill Barr approach, honestly, to be you know very conservative, if we want to use that word, not in as a small c, and and say we're so concerned about precedent that we're not at all concerned about outcomes. And Governor DeSantis is the totally opposite of that, where he's saying, in the short term, I want wins, and I want to go after these objectives, and we're seeing that in the state of Florida. He doesn't care if he gets suit over it. He's like, we're going to win, and we're going to win today, and then, you know, worry about tomorrow because what the left is doing is using all of this against us to say, well, um, because you're so concerned about precedent, then you're not as concerned about wins in the here and now. And and really, this has been, in my view, and, and it actually, this conversation changed my mind on how to approach uh, some of these issues and why Governor DeSantis has been approaching these in the way that he has. And I think um, Victor Davis Hansen articulated it really brilliantly to say it's not just that our response then is, well, fine, then burn it all down. And we don't care about the process because if the Democrats are going to cheat, then we will, too. You know, that kind of rhetoric, which is absolutely wrong. We have to stay in the contours of reality and the law, but we can do it in a way 
that's thinking about today and not being right. as concerned about precedent that the Democrats are, don't don't care about anyway. So that to me was right. really fascinating. And I think that his view of all of this with um, with advising the governor and of course, you know, isn't just isn't the only advisor. But another thing that struck me in this piece was um, how many voices that are very, very solid um, Governor DeSantis is hearing from. And I contrast that, of course, with, you know, you're in my experience with uh, President Trump, for example, that got a lot of advice, but got a lot of advice from people who weren't necessarily the best or, or competent and, and kind of having that same um, view of, well, I, I don't really want to go in. And I, I, I say that I drain the swamp, but I think, um, Steve, what is a fair criticism of the first four years of Donald Trump was that he really didn't go in and say, okay, I'm going to go in and and genuinely clean house with some of these uh, career bureaucrats in the same way that what we have already seen Governor DeSantis do in Florida. Right. Yeah. And by the way, to that point, you know, regarding draining the swamp and and the failures of, of President Trump, I think so many of them, and by the way, we can admire his successes and still be honest, about where he came up short. And, I, you know, I, I know you're in that category. I certainly am. Uh, I appreciate um, and, and very much admire uh, some of the amazing things that President Trump did. We can also be adults and say, OK, here were the places that he missed. And to me, the biggest misses involved the wrong personnel, people who were not loyal to the agenda, uh, who did not have the best interests of the administration and the America First movement at heart. And I would say that, uh, you know, Exhibit A would be the people in the FBI and DOJ, people like Christopher Ray, for example, who was appointed by President Trump. And he loves to rail against people like Ray, like Bill Barr. And I think rightfully so in many cases, his criticisms are well-founded, uh, but he seems to be almost uh, impervious to the reality that he appointed them, uh, that he appointed and hired these very same people. And so I think what we see with him is the opposite of Governor DeSantis. We see somebody who might have the right intentions, but totally fails when it comes to implementation, doesn't have the discipline and focus, doesn't have the judgment uh, to to determine who are the right people to carry out this mission and what should the mission be. I think we see the exact opposite with Ron DeSantis. We see somebody uh, who brings a relentless focus, who brings discipline uh, to process um, and believes that it's not enough to just loudly protest on social media. We can do that. But it has to be followed up by implementation. He's done it in Florida. He now has a very solid plan that, that we are increasingly learning about, uh, articulated plan to do it in Washington, D.C. And, and I believe when we contrast those two records, it, it, the, to me, the choice will become clear to the American people, to Republican voters, that this is the nominee we want. This is the person who won't just complain about the DOJ and FBI, who will actually finally bring these out-of-control agencies to heel. Um, And I I believe that's a compelling reason to support Governor DeSantis for president. And Steve Cortez, I think that that, that how you articulated that is exactly the question that every concerned American citizen needs to ask is how do we genuinely solve this problem? What is the strategy? Because we can, you know, have these kind of fun taglines of, you know, drain the swamp and we need to do all this. But if there's not actually a strategy to get from point A to point B, then what are we doing? And I would love to see every GOP candidate actually have a comprehensive plan like what 
we're seeing with Governor DeSantis, because I want in the next president, I'm hoping that, you know, we get a, a very good, qualified, competent person in the White House uh, that will actually not only, you know, have this type of rhetoric, but follow it up with strategy and with utilizing the powers of the executive in a way that actually benefits the American people. Because I think so many people are so tired of just talking about the weaponization of government. And, you know, and frankly, they're even tired of Congress just talking about the weaponization of government. What has actually been done in, you know, the last two and a half years? And, And go ahead. Closing thoughts. And hopefully, I don't, maybe Steve, uh, well, that was Steve Cortez, and I think we lost him, but that's okay, because we're out of time already. But you can read uh, this this piece, which is called Exclusive, The DeSantis Plan to Wage War on a Weaponized DOJ in Real Clear Politics. And, you know, whether you support DeSantis or someone else, the point here is we need to have a plan. We need to be strategic. I don't see conservatives doing that most often. So I'm excited about a plan. I'm excited about taking back our country for the truth in the U.S. Constitution, and I'll see tomorrow morning right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.